Emory University's Gosweta Business School, we believe in going beyond what is, opting to build what should be. Because when you change your perspective, you can change business for the better. In an ever-changing marketplace, we seek to make our mark, to achieve more, build more, do more, create more. That's the Goisweta Effect. I'm your host, Rochelle Ritchie, and today we'll be talking about racial bias in the workplace. I'm joined by Dr. Erica Hall, who is an assistant professor of organization and management at Emory University's Goisweta Business School, and whose research focuses on the influence of race, gender, and class-based biases on interactions within the workplace and more broadly within society. Dr. Hall, thank you so much for joining us uh, today on Goisweta Effect. I'm really excited to have this timely and important conversation with you around racial bias in the workplace. Um, As you know, and everyone knows, the last few months have continued uh, to expose racial disparities in policing, criminal justice, our health care, and throughout the workforce. So I want to ask you, what sparked your interest in racial bias in the workplace? Uh, Yes, well, it's definitely my pleasure to be here and to be talking about these issues. I think that it's great that there's this sudden kind of awareness that people have about racial bias and that they're paying attention to it now. So I'm happy to talk about it. Um, In terms of my interest in racial bias in the workplace, when I entered graduate school, I originally had an interest in studying culture in institutions and entrepreneurship, actually. So as part of my curriculum, I took a class with Catherine Phillips on groups and teams. And in the class, we started learning the social psychological determinants of privilege and advantage. And the material just felt so much more personal to me. It felt like I derived meaning in my personal life for having the tools to understand the mechanics of disadvantage. So this personal and professional blend made research that much more fascinating for me. I would think of research questions in the shower, frequently bring them up at the dinner table as a topic of conversation, amuse about the dynamics of what I was studying as it pertains to you know, popular reality TV shows. So from there, Kathy became my advisor and I never looked back on investigating the mechanics of race. So when you talk about you know, your personal experience, um, have you yourself experienced um, racial bias in a job? you know, just just in life in general? And if so, you know, at that time, what happened and how did you handle it? So the thing that Black Americans face that is so interesting is that they're constantly trying to disentangle what is bias versus an anomaly versus any deficiency in themselves. That's because it's what we would call in statistics an N of one or a sample of one person. So that's why I love talking about bias in aggregate. I employ hundreds and sometimes thousands of people and companies in my research studies. That way I can see trends in discrimination. This didn't just happen to one person, it occurred for 80 to 90% of our sample. So to come back to your question, I can speculate, but unfortunately I'll never know. So what I can tell you though, is that discrimination exists on a macro scale And it's highly statistically likely that I have fallen prey to some of this bias. Can you give an example of some of that that bias? 
that I may have encountered. Yeah, that you may have encountered because I know that in your when you did your webinar, you talked about the the two uh, racial spheres, um, and maybe you can dive a little bit into that. There are two spheres for Black Americans. One is professional, and one is personal. So the personal aspect of it um, are things that happen outside of the workplace. So we're talking about interactions within the police, the healthcare system, um, interactions within education. And when it comes to professional, those are the things that happen when you are at work. So these are uh, aspects related to not being hired or not being liked within your organization because of stereotypes associated with blacks. And both of those spheres kind of affect one another. So I can't go to work without thinking in my mind about what's happening in the broader society or what's happening with my kid in public education. And I can't be at home without thinking about how my economic outcomes are affected um, by racial bias or by discrimination. So they both build upon each other. So it's just, it's, it's whether it's personal or professional, it, it really just surrounds, you know, black Americans, um, in this country, it seems. Yes, absolutely. It's all inclusive and encompassing. How does racial bias obviously impact work productivity? Because oftentimes we hear that, you know, the more diverse that a company is, the better, um, product or services that they provide. But if you have racial bias and um, there are, you know, black Americans um, at that workplace feeling that, even though they don't know for sure if it's happening, but they feel it, how could that impact work productivity? So racial bias is really anxiety inducing and it literally drains workers of the cognitive resources or brain power that they need to focus on an intellectual task. There are some studies that suggest uh, a psychosomatic association, too, where this negative mental state begins to affect our bodies. So even physical labor jobs beyond intellectual um, jobs that require intellectual tasks would be impacted by racial bias. So it just starts with that negative emotional state, that negative feeling, which doesn't allow you to concentrate on other things and affects you both physically and mentally. So you're not as productive as before. How do we recognize it in the workplace? Not just from a management standpoint, but if you're an employee and say um, you're not a black employee or you're of another race, how can people recognize racial bias in the workplace? So one thing that people can do is they can use a control group, which means if there was another person that had the same type of qualifications, who had the same resume, do I believe that that person would suffer the same outcomes as this black person is right now? Right, so you can kind of look at it in an experimental way. But just as I suggested for black people themselves, it's difficult to tease out what's racial bias versus what is an anomaly versus what is a deficiency in myself. And I can imagine for white employees that it's difficult as well. But I think that you just have to constantly be thinking about what's the the counter to this? What is the counter hypothetical? If this person were white, would they be experiencing this now? 
we've seen that um, black unemployment remains and has consistently and historically remained significantly higher than white unemployment. Do you think that racial bias is, is behind that? Oh, I absolutely do. There are many different things behind that that add to discrimination in a number of ways. Um, one niche that I know best is in hiring biases. So blacks are associated with stereotypes about their future performance. And many resume studies show that when people encounter the same exact resume, these stereotypes invade people's perceptions if the name on top of that resume is perceived to be black versus white. The second thing is social networks. So typically it is easier to navigate employment when you have a robust, well-connected social network to help you find and get linked with jobs. Networks, however, tend to be homogeneous, meaning that white people have networks with other white people and minorities have networks with other minorities. So if white uh, employees currently hold the high status jobs, then this skew perpetuates the asymmetries in an unemployment. Interesting. One other you know, thing when we talk about the employment of Black people, and you, you actually just mentioned it, is names. I, I've known people, um, you know, friends of mine that are Black that have changed their name and, and gone by their middle name or something in order to um, not be discriminated against when getting a job. And so it seems that even before um, Black people are working um, in the workplace or at a company, that they're, they already have this anxiety of not getting the job um, just because of their name or, you know, if someone, you know, looks at their social media or finds out that they're Black. The more the name is stereotypical of a particular group, the more people impute the stereotypes of that group onto the individual with that name. And the way that we can distinctly know that and test that is with this methodology called an audit study. And an audit study is where we create a fictitious resume that has all the qualifications that looks like a normal resume, and we make two copies of it. On one copy, the name is either a name that's stereotypically black or Asian or Latino, and the other one, it's one that's stereotypically white. And then we literally send out these resumes to actual companies. Now, what we find is that when um, we assess the callback rate from the companies based on which resume they were given, and we find that the callback rate for blacks and minorities in general tends to be lower than for if they had a white name on the resume. However, it's the same exact resume that's given to different companies. So um, names are really important. There was also one study published in Administrative Science Quarterly, um, which suggested that both black and Asian employees tend to cover, meaning that they change their name in a way that'll make it whiter. Um, so I believe for black employees, this meant using a first initial and a middle name. And for Asian employees, this meant using a more anglicized name. And actually when they did this, they were more likely to get the job than if they had used their original names. So even though it's extremely sad that this is something that they have to do, 
the institutions are set so that they reward the whitening of names. Do you think this kind of goes into code switching a little bit? I've heard of the code switch and it happens very often in the workplace, particularly with um, Black Americans. Do you find that the changing of the name is sort of part of that code switching? I think it definitely can be. So just to define code switching a little bit, code switching is when Black Americans feel like they have to um, develop another persona or um, use different personality techniques, different vernacular when they're in professional settings versus when they're at home or in more comfortable settings. Now, I think everybody has to code switch to some degree of any race, right, between personal and professional, but it seems to be more distinct and more disparate for Black Americans. Um, To some degree, I think code switching can involve a little bit of assimilation, so they're trying to um, fit in to some degree or be more like the professional setting. But it's a tool that they use, or Black Americans use, to become more adaptable to different situations. Um, And if the culture at home or in society is very different than the professional culture that they have, then they have to develop two different ways of interacting within those cultures. What do you think the biggest misconception uh, is about racial bias in the workplace? Well, I think the biggest misconception is that you have to be racist to be biased. So let me impact that just a little bit here. It's pretty. That's I like that. <laughs> yes. When we think of a racist, we think of someone who explicitly holds opinions that devalue one race over the other. However, bias is so implicit and so covert that you can be extremely well-intentioned and value equity and still create and contribute to bias institutions. So I can give you an example of this. If I don't hire someone who is black because I'm fearful that my customers would respond better to someone that is white, I've discriminated, even though I may personally not hold any negative feelings toward black people. I'll give you another example from the real estate industry. So black people often take down all of the photos of themselves and their families before getting their homes appraised. And they have anecdotally found that if they leave the photos up, their appraisal is consistently lower than if they didn't. So I read an article where a professional appraiser said that appraisers just try to mirror the market, that people are less willing to buy a home that was previously owned by a black person and their appraisal is just reflecting this discrimination. However, appraisals are consequential for the resulting sale price and other dimensions like refinancing a mortgage. Therefore, the appraiser has just disadvantaged the black person without explicitly espousing racist thoughts. So definitely, in order to be biased or contribute to discrimination, you don't have to explicitly be racist. The institutions are set that if you kind of just go with the status quo, there are instances in which you can contribute to discrimination. In your webinar, um, you discuss the comfort level of describing people as Black or African American. Um, And for those who may wonder what is the difference and how does the use of one over the other imply, 
how does how does that imply or highlight a person's racial bias based off of using black or african-american in my webinar it's based on some research that i did in 2015 i found that the the stereotypes associated with the black label were more negative less competent less warm and lower socioeconomic status than the african-american label so there's one experiment that we do in there where we have an application form and the application form is identical, except that the person is identified as black in one and African-American in the other. And we find that that person's less likely to uh, be hired. They're less likely to be perceived as um, warranting a managerial position rather than a subordinate position. And they're perceived as lower incompetence and lower status. So this is just where you really see the stereotypes that are um, being exuded by each of these labels. That's interesting. So is that why on some applications you'll see when it you know asks you to identify um, your race, it'll say black or African-American? I don't think that they knew that before. I think that generally there is a preference that people have. They either like black or African-American but that these words are often used interchangeably. Um, they're not exactly interchangeable. There is a literal difference, but this literal difference doesn't hold much weight within the culture. So black refers to the entire diaspora of people with African heritage throughout the world, whereas African-American refers to black people within Northern America, within North America. Um, but within the USA, these two labels are used interchangeably to refer to the same group. To look at apples to apples and be entirely correct, you can just say Black American versus African American. And you found this difference um, not only when it came to how people operate and how people see, you know, Black or African American, but even you you did a Google search and saw a, a difference. What did you find? Yes. So we Googled the term Black people and looked at the results. We actually extracted the first 100 um, search results that we got in Google Images. And then we immediately Googled African-American people. And then we extracted the first 100 Google Images results that we got after that. The content of the photos that showed up for Black versus African-American were more negative, degrading, and stereotypical than African-American. So you can see that it even permeates culture so much that the way that these uh, photos were labeled kind of affected the system or affected the Google Analytics system. And I think that this kind of goes into another, you know, diverting a little bit away from racial bias in the workplace. But we've seen a number of police shootings of unarmed black men in recent years um, and women. And you talked about this and you talked about signal detection analysis. What is that and how does it impact police encounters with, with uh, black or African-American people? So signal detection analysis is a tool that researchers use to measure how sensitive a shooter is towards shooting one group of people versus the other. So for example, the studies show that people tend to have a lower bar for shooting an unarmed black man versus an unarmed white man. And they tend to do so at a quicker rate. 
And so the when we talk about the interactions uh, with um, Black or African Americans, that would be more when you talked about the racial bias in two spheres. That would be more on the personal um, side. That would be more of an example of one of the, a personal racial bias, correct? Yes. Um, if we think about the personal sphere, these are every these are things that um, are in society or in our family lives or personal lives. So definitely police falls into the societal aspect of it. Um, I mean, it could interact if you're in the workplace and you feel like you have to deal with these issues too, uh, with security guards or so forth. When we talk about, when you talked about the racial, um, the two racial spheres, um, personal and professional, the police encounters is more on the personal sphere, correct? Yes, the the personal sphere would be anything that happens uh, related to society or societal institutions or within your personal life, so your family life. There is an instance or there could be an instance where you, you might have discrimination with a security guard in your professional workspace, but typically the police aspect goes into the personal sphere. So what are some of those stereotypes when it comes to uh, policing and, and racial bias? There are a couple. So one is black youth as adult-like. And this is just the idea that on average, white perceivers tend to believe that black youth are older than they are. Um, and why this matters is that if you have a civilian in the police encounter with somebody of a younger age, like Tamir Rice, who was 12 when he was killed, um, then the police officer is going to apply more force than the boy's age warrants, right? Um, so that's why it's particularly detrimental for our black youth. The other that I mentioned in the paper is black says both sub and superhuman. So there's been research one by melissa williams who's also in the business school that show that white participants dehumanize um of blacks or have this association with them with apes or considering them ape-like now when i say white participants this is a broad average this was a tendency that they saw in the research right this is not saying that all white people um espouse these beliefs. But what they found was that uh, there was this tendency to see black versus white people as associated with apes. And the more that our participant did see that association, the more that they condoned police brutality against the black person. Um, superhuman, which is odd, right? That they can be both super and subhuman is that there's an association with them and mystical qualities. So if you think of Darren Wilson, who was the killer of um, Mike Ferguson, he had an interview where he suggested that Mike Ferguson was like Hulk Hogan, that he had this superhuman quality about him and that he had to use an exceptional amount of force in order to combat that superhuman quality. So research has shown that blacks are perceived to have this superhuman strength and quality about them. Um, 
and whites are not, and that this also contributes to people thinking that they need to use an extreme level of, of force. Um, the last thing I'll say is uh, there's a wide stereotype of blacks as violent and blacks as criminal. So there are a lot of subconscious associations with that. And there have been studies where they'll show either a black face or a white face, and they'll show either a cell phone or a gun on top of that face. And they ask people to quickly to respond whether they're, that person is a threat or not. And this is when the kind of signal detection analysis comes into play, where people are more likely to have an erroneous um, answer for black people with a cell phone, right? Rather than um, suggesting that they think it's a gun. And that's just because there's this implicit stereotype or association that goes with blacks and criminality that leads the brain to believe that it's a criminal weapon instead of something that's more mundane. Now, I have a very interesting question. Do you think it is possible for African-American or black police officers to express racial bias as well? Uh, yes, it's absolutely possible. Racism is cultural, right? So it's embedded in our media. It's embedded in our institutions and um, in how they were constructed. So just the mere fact that you are black doesn't preclude you from buying into this system that was created. Um, this is a little bit tangential, but it, I will bring it back around, I promise. There was a doll study that was conducted um, in the last century. I, I can't remember exactly what decade it was, where they asked black and white children to look at a doll that was either black or white and pick the one that they preferred, that they liked more, that they thought was nicer. And what they found was that both black and white children continued to choose the white doll over the black doll, right? So the stereotypes are so embedded that from a young age, there is this implicit preference um, that happens, and that's because of media and institutions. So while you do see in some studies that there is less of an implicit bias among black police officers, you do still find that they hold some of the implicit biases that the white police officers do. And when you talk about the media uh, being, you know, somewhat complicit in uh, feeding this this monster, really, of racial bias, um, how does the media do that? We constantly look to the media, especially news media as a source of something that accurately reflects the world. However, the way that it's presented is not always accurate, right? There's a, there's a slant there. And the media can give us more images of things that they think we are uh, particularly terrified about in order to increase ratings. So for example, they could show more stories of black people committing burglaries rather than white people committing the same offenses. The way that they show um, or they cover the stories also can infect our, affect our interpretation as well. There was um, 
a study that was done, which I thought was particularly interesting, where they showed that, and, and I hope I don't misquote this because I'm, I'm just referring back to the study in my mind, that people who did not favor Obama in Obama's 2009 election would per, or not people, outlets, media outlets that did not favor Obama would show pictures of him, the same picture of him, but they would darken the skin. So if we think of cues that make people um, more alarmed or scared of black people, it's like phenotypically if they have like larger features or they have darker skin, then they become more stereotypical to them. So they would darken the skin on Obama in these magazine articles versus lightening the skin for more liberal ones. So media can kind of manipulate the way that it shows particular people in the degree to which that it constantly shows blacks associated with criminality. And this all seems to have a trickle-down effect. I mean, it's, it is, it's in the workplace, it's in policing, it's in our healthcare system, it's in uh, the media. How do you think, because it seems to me that your research is so important and that every police department and company uh, should be reaching out to have a study, a self-analysis really, um, on their own practices to see where there are holes and how they can eliminate any form of racial, racial bias. Um, have you been able to share your research um, with any uh, companies or police departments that are looking to make um, some, some sort of reform? So not specifically police departments, um, but there are people that specifically specialize on that. So Phil Goff, for example, majority of his research concentrates on racial bias in police departments. So he's called on often to um, have them collect data and, and do experiments and so forth. What I've mainly been focused on, I have one paper talking about racial bias in policing, but is racial bias societally and in the workplace. And so I have given um, talks to organizations who hope to improve for sure um, and to experiment within their own community to try to figure out if racial bias exists. Do you think that some companies are scared to find out if racial bias exists and so they just try to ignore it? Absolutely. It's a liability. In every company that I've worked with, there's been an NDA where I would give them the raw results, but in terms of publishing it, I have to publish it without their name or any association to them. So I can just say Fortune 500 company in this particular industry, but I can't distinctly say who they are. But it's so important um, for them to do this and to, because I think sometimes people and in companies and management, they probably feel that they, they don't want to be exposed for being racially biased, but it seems that it would be extremely important for them to recognize the racial bias and then be able to say, and we're doing something about it. I wholeheartedly agree with you. I think now companies are more interested in it because it, it, it's coming more to the forefront. So they have to um, deal with it, but a lot of companies are now dealing with it in a very reactive way. Um, rather being, rather than kind of getting in front of this 
when it happened 10, 20 years ago. I'm just happy that they are dealing with it now. For more information about the Goisweta Effect podcast, please visit emory.biz slash podcast.